So today is a special Sunday. As you've heard before, today is Youth Sunday, and this is a unique opportunity that we have about once a year to give the youth ministry a bit more visibility. And in line with that, I'd like my leaders to stand up, Justin, Drew, Taylor, Miles, and Jackson. And these are... <laughs> and these are our youth leaders. And you guys can stay standing for a moment because... <laughs> The reason that I have you guys looking at them is because these are the people that are investing in and working with your students, and it matters to me that you're able to see the way that they function in church, that you can talk to them about the youth ministry, you can talk to them about your students. It's important that you know who they are so that they can be points of contact for you. And now you guys can sit down. But just about these people, these are people who know the gospel, these are people who believe the gospel, these are people who can share the gospel, and these are people that I think are good examples for junior hires and high schoolers to emulate. And also, those are the criteria for youth leaders. So if you're in you know, this room and you're thinking to yourself, well, I know the gospel, I believe the gospel, I can share the gospel, and there are some things in my life that a junior hire or high schooler could emulate, shoot me an email. <laughs> um, let's talk about it. Being a youth leader is not exclusively for college-age people. Um, <laughs> so, in addition to that, I do need to address a bit of an elephant in a room. Uh, some of you may have noticed that there's a tad bit more family resemblance than normal. <laughs> and you would be correct, uh, my hair and beard are gone. And the reason for that is not because I'm joking and like, hey, this, wouldn't this be funny? Um, but actually... Last Wednesday, I was just teaching the students about the Nazarite vow, which is something from Numbers chapter 6, where you uh, don't cut your hair for a set period of time, you don't drink alcohol, a few other things, and I thought it would be really interesting to make that come alive by actually doing one. And so for the next three months, no haircuts, no, no uh, trimming my beard, no drinking, as well as some other stuff, and you can ask your students about that, and I'm pretty sure that some of them have videos, so that might be worth looking into. But as far as the actual lesson for today, we can kind of move on to that. And today I have been asked to talk to you guys about 1 Timothy chapter 4. And personally, I'm kind of excited about that because it happens that this is the same passage that was the final lesson for our winter camp. And so for me, there's a kind of little fun thing where it's like, okay, the same Bible that a junior hire needs is the same Bible that a parent needs, is the same Bible that an older Christian needs, is the same Bible that anyone in any circumstance needs. And so there's kind of a devotional aspect of this for me where it's like, yeah, do I really believe that? I absolutely believe that. I'm about to bring you guys the same passage that was crucial for a room of junior hires and high schoolers a few months ago. And it's not going to be the same message because it's a different audience, but there's going to be a lot of the same stuff because it's the same verses. And so I'm excited to bring that to you and to show you that every Christian needs the same spiritual food. And so 1 Timothy chapter 4 is a chapter about the defense of the church. You can kind of think of the book of 1 Timothy as the basics of doing church, where it's written to a pastor about how you run the church, how the church functions, and the goal of the people who are in the church. And 1 Timothy chapter 4 is one that I like to refer to as the defense of the church. And, I mean, I'm going to kind of dive in, but our first point is that we need to know Satan's mode of attack. And when we're talking about the defense of the church, if you think about what the church is, 
every single Christian has been sent into the world with a mission, and as a church, we're just a group of Christians pursuing that mission together. And that mission is the salvation of the people who are still left to be saved. And in John 17, verse 18, Jesus is speaking to his father, and he says, As you have sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. We aren't called to separate ourselves off. We aren't called to be just pulled out of everything. We are called to engage. And so the church is like a headquarters where you establish um, a function of, um, you establish a base of operations in some foreign land so that you can go there to rest, to recuperate, to strategize, and then to head back into your battlefield more prepared than before. And that's what the church is supposed to be. And so when we think about the fact that that's the way that we're supposed to function, Satan is not only going to resist us as we go into the world trying to win souls, Satan is going to actively attack the church. This is a prime target for Satan's activity in the world because he wants to invalidate our ability to reach the lost. And if you read in Ephesians chapter 6, verses 11 and 12, Paul tells us to put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood, but against rulers, against authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces in the evil heavenly places. Spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. And so we know that Satan's going to attack. We don't need to wonder if that's going to happen, and that is the context that you need as we start into 1 Timothy chapter 4, because Paul opens with what does Satan's attack look like in the context of a church. So if you want to follow along in verse 1, it says, Now the Spirit expressly says that in the latter times some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons, through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared, who forbid marriage and to require abstinence from food that God created to be received with thanksgiving by those who believe and know the truth. For everything created by God is good, and nothing is to be rejected if it is received with thanksgiving, for it is made holy by the word of God and prayer. And so when you look at this, you see that the way that Satan attacks the church is by attacking the teaching of the church. You can kind of imagine Satan as like this soldier with a camouflaged face, a knife in his teeth, crawling into the enemy tents and then trying to poison the people in there. Because if you think about the way that Satan works, think back to the garden. When Satan wanted to doom an entire race, he didn't do it with a knife, he didn't do it with poison, he didn't do it with the snake's fangs, he did it by lying to them. And the exact same way that Satan functioned back then is the same way that he functions now. And so the issue that you run into is that a lot of times when you're in the world and you're out there, when you're in Satan's world, you can kind of expect that lies are going to come your way. The difficulty is that as individual Christians and as a church, we need to be prepared for Satan's lies to come even here. And the issue is, one of Satan's goals is to mislead pastors, to mislead the Christians that you're going to get advice from. And I mean, let's just take a look at this again. I mean, 
Paul speaks pretty strongly about this. He says, Some will depart from the faith by devoting themselves to deceitful spirits and the teaching of demons through the insincerity of liars whose consciences are seared. And when I hear Paul go on a tirade like that about the doctrines of demons and seared consciences and liars... I'm expecting that he's going to say something like, who say that God's not real, that Jesus was just a man, and that the Bible is a work of fiction. That's the kind of thing that I'm expecting after that list. And then he follows it up with, who forbid marriage and require abstinence from foods. It's not that that's not important, but that is not what I was expecting in that section. And I mean, to address what that is, Back in this time in the early church, there were a few heresies that kind of were moving around. There was Gnostics, and that's this dualistic belief where you believe that the spirit world is good, that matter is evil, and so anything that brings your body pleasure is automatically wrong. And it's people who disregard that God made a good world. You also have people like Judaizers who are going through churches and they're saying, to be a Christian and to be saved, you need to follow the Old Testament law. You need to choose which foods you eat and don't eat. You need to keep the Sabbath and the festivals. Otherwise, you're just not ready. And there's also another group called the Essens. That's where we get the Dead Sea Scrolls from, where it was a common thing in their circles that they would say that you couldn't get married. And so maybe Paul is referring to one of those. Maybe Paul's referring to something different. Maybe Paul's referring to all of them at the same time. But these are issues that would have been important for the early church. Additionally, like that's where that comes from. But here's the other thing. Comparatively, those are kind of minor things. Compared to things like who is God, who is Jesus, and what is the Bible, those are kind of minor. And so what you see is this. Anytime you take something and you add it to the Bible, or anytime you take something and you pull it from the Bible, that is a doctrine of demons. That is how Satan gets his foothold into a church. That's how Satan causes things like legalism. That's how Satan invalidates and ruins our ability to function in the world as missionaries and to function in the world as a beacon of God's light. It starts with lies. And you might think that they're minor, but they're not. And so the issue that you run into is this. It's like, okay, John, well, if I'm supposed to be going into the world and expecting lies, and if I'm supposed to be going into the church and expecting lies, then how am I supposed to navigate? What's my source of truth supposed to be? And if you want to take a look at Acts chapter 17, verse 10 and 11, you actually find your answer. And in Acts 17, 10 and 11, it says, The brothers immediately sent Paul and Silas away by night to Berea. And when they arrived, they went into the Jewish synagogue. Now these Jews were more noble than those in Thessalonica, which is high praise, by the way. They received the word with all eagerness, examining the scriptures daily to see if these things were so. And here's the thing. Like, let's just talk about who Paul is. Paul, capital A, Apostle Paul. Paul, reveal, like Jesus reveals himself to this guy, trains him in the deserts of Arabia. Paul, who wrote 1 Timothy, the letter that we're reading right now. Paul, who is responsible either directly or indirectly for the vast majority of the New Testament. When this guy goes to a Jewish synagogue and starts sharing the gospel with them, and all of them are reading the Bible and making sure that what he's saying is accurate, Paul doesn't say, hey, 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 don't you know who I am? Don't you realize that I'm the capital A apostle to the Gentiles? You're checking up on me? 
No. Paul looks at a group of people who are evaluating even him by the Bible, and he says, good. That is exactly what you are supposed to do. And the issue is this. You're not going to find a Christian as faithful as Paul. You're not going to find a pastor as faithful as Paul. There is not going to be anyone in the modern day that you can be as sure of their theology as the author of, like, most of the epistles. And then Paul says, you better make sure you're checking up on me. And so I just got to say, you better make sure that you're checking up on me and whoever else is up here. And the issue that you run into is this. This is written to a pastor, but this doesn't just apply to pastors. As a Christian, you have been sent into the world to be a representative of God. You have been sent as an ambassador of God's kingdom, and you are going to have opportunities to speak to your kids, to speak to people at work, to speak to classmates, to speak to other Christians who need your encouragement or your rebuke. And is what you're going to say the truth of God's word or the doctrines of demons? And when you're coming to church and you're talking to other people and you're listening to a sermon or you're getting encouragement or you're talking to people at work or anywhere else, are they using their mouths to tell you the things that Satan wants you to hear? And the difficulty is this. How do you tell the difference? Do you listen to these things and you think about, well, what makes me feel good? What do I prefer? Are you comparing them to secular philosophies and academics and authorities? Are you thinking about any of those issues or... Are you thinking about what the Bible says? And do you know the Bible well enough to make that distinction? Because as as Christians, every single Christian is actually called to that level of knowledge. You're supposed to be reading the Bible. You're supposed to be knowing what it says. And you're supposed to be not evaluating the Bible by the things that men tell you, but evaluating the things men tell you by what the Bible says. And that is something that every single Christian needs to have as their foundation because I can't be your source of truth. No pastor can be your source of truth. Your parents cannot be your source of truth. God's word has to be because we make mistakes, sometimes intentionally, sometimes unintentionally. And so that's the first thing. Satan is going to attack the church with lies. And the way that you need to prepare to be able to defend against that is to know the truth. And so as we move on, the next thing that we're going to look at is our church's spiritual training. Because we don't necessarily start at that level. We don't necessarily walk into a room with biblical dictionaries stored in our brains, ready to go. So how are we going to engage in battle with this person who's trying to destroy our churches as we are fighting with him for the souls of the world? Well, in verse 6 through 10, It says, if you put these things before the brothers, you will be a good servant of Christ Jesus, being trained in the words of faith and of the good doctrine that you have followed. Have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. The saying is trustworthy and deserving of full acceptance, for to this end we toil and strive, because we have our hope set on the living God, who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And so the thing that you see is that none of us are finished products. All of us are in progress. And that means that we need to be relying on the word. We need to be learning what it says, and we need to be learning how to use it. In Ephesians chapter 6, when we talk about the armor of a believer, we are given only a single offensive weapon. 
And in 17b and 18a, it says that we attack using the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, praying at all times in the Spirit with all prayer and supplication. And so, first of all, you see that we need to be relying on the Word. We need to know the Word. We need to know how to wield the Word. And we need to have a reliance on the Holy Spirit, who is enabling us to yield that, to wield, to wield that Word properly. And we are supposed to be using the Word in prayer, drawing on those resources. Additionally, we need to be training up in that, but we also have a purpose in learning the word. You're not learning the word for the sake of winning a game of Bible trivia. In verse 7, it says, have nothing to do with irreverent, silly myths. Rather, train yourself for godliness. And the issue that you think about is that when you're learning what the Bible says, you're not doing it for the sake of the knowledge itself. You're doing it for the sake of what you're going to use that knowledge for. That knowledge needs to work its way out into your life, into your words, into your ministry with other people, and into your own personal relationship with God. And also, in addition to that, you're going to be yield, uh, wielding it with hope. Because if you look at verses 8 through 10, it says, For while bodily training is of some value, godliness is of value in every way, as it holds promise for the present life and also for the life to come. In verse 10, for this end we toil and strive because we have our hope set on the living God who is the Savior of all people, especially those who believe. And one of the things that we need to remember when we're talking about setting our hope on the living God, we are not in our home. And like we said, we have been sent into the world by Jesus for the sake of winning souls. This is not our home. This is our battleground. And I want you to imagine World War I. Imagine the soldiers in the trenches of World War I, people who are trapped in what seems like a useless, worthless, endless battle where you're losing ground, gaining ground, you're dealing with trench foot, you're trapped in these trenches, and you are desperate for the time that you can eventually go home because the people on that battlefield were not surviving and they were not thinking about how awesome their day-to-day -day was. They weren't thinking, man, I've got it pretty good here. I'm actually down to stay as long as I need to. No. They were desperate for the time that they could go home. They were fighting harder so that they could come quicker to victory so that they could go home. They were trying to survive day in and day out in the desperate hope that one day they would make it home. And for us, the difficulty that we have, especially living in the United States, is that we see the comforts that we think are ours, and we can get distracted. And we can get convinced that this is our home and not our battlefield. And so when we talk about setting our hope on the living God, that is not just saying, hey, remember that you're going to win eventually, and that is partially what it's saying. But that's not just that, but it's also a reminder of where you're ultimately going. It's a reminder to set your mind on eternity, not just for yourself, but also for the people around you who need the gospel. This is not our home. This is our battlefield. And we are learning what the word of God says so that we can apply it to our gospel ministry and also to the function of the church. Because this is not our home. This is our battlefield. Our rest comes later. And so, in the last portion, we're going to look at our third point that it's not just our spiritual training, and it's not just the church as a whole, but the church is made up of individuals. So we need to think about each Christian's conduct. 
How are we supposed to carry ourselves and function in the church so that we can have effective ministries, so that we can have an effective gospel witness, so that we can resist the battlefield of the devil, and so that we can fulfill our mission? Well, if we read in verse 11, it says, Command and teach these things. Let no one despise you for your youth, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. Until I come, devote yourself to the public reading of Scripture, to exhortation, to teaching. Do not neglect the gift that you have, which was given you by the prophecy when, el- when the council of elders laid their hands on you. Practice these things and immerse yourself in them so that all, who see, so that all may see your progress. Keep a close watch on yourself and on the teaching. Persist in this, for by doing so, you will save both yourself and your hearers. And I mean, a couple things that you can kind of notice in there. You can see that the word is still given a very major place of preeminence all throughout this chapter. You can't get anywhere in 1 Timothy without having to deal with the fact that the Bible's got to be at the center. So that's still a big deal. But here's the other thing that we're looking at. Paul is writing to Timothy, and Timothy is a younger Christian. And I mean, when we say younger, we don't necessarily know exactly how old Timothy was. I think he was sometime somewhere in his 30s. So a slightly different definition of young that we might necessarily have. But when you see Paul talking to a younger Christian, he says, let no one despise you for your youth. And when he's saying, let no one despise you for your youth, he's not talking about getting into ego battles where like maybe someone in Timothy's church comes up to him and says, you know, Timothy, you're kind of young. And then Timothy goes, well, I may be young, but you're a dinosaur, man. I bet Moses still owes you four bucks. Come on. Like, nothing along those lines. This is not about ego. This is not about a fight. This is instead about Paul saying, do not let your youth be an excuse for your immaturity. Because if you take another look, it says, but set the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. That when Paul is looking at a young Christian, he says, your job is to speak the way that you're supposed to speak, to do the things you're supposed to do, to be motivated by the things you're supposed to be motivated by, and to believe the things that you're supposed to believe, and to reject the things that the world wants to give you. That is Paul's standard for a young Christian. And yet, a lot of times in the church and anywhere we go, we can fall prey to the lie that that is beyond a young Christian, that that is not the expectation that God has for a junior hire. Last year, I told you that what happens in this room is not too complicated for a junior hire. And the thing that we need to recognize is that if you are a Christian, you have the Holy Spirit in you. The Holy Spirit is enabling you to function the way that you ought to function both in the church and in the world, And he is giving you the ability to understand the things that the Bible says, and also he is driving you to engage in the community of the church. Because if your junior hire is a Christian, this is not too complicated for them. Additionally, it is necessary for them. This is their food. And when we're talking about that, you'll notice that, or I guess it's not up there yet, So you'll notice that I'm going to break this up into a few sections, and it says young slash single Christians. Because when I talk about this, I'm talking about setting the believers an example in speech, in conduct, in love, in faith, in purity. 
That's actually the baseline for every Christian. That's not just young Christians, that's every Christian. And that's related to our ability to share the gospel. Because, just to give an example, when I grew up in the church, there was always those people that would, you know, make sure that they helped my parents raise me. And for anyone who's grown up in the church, I'm sure that that's a familiar experience. And one of the things that I noticed is that oftentimes you would have someone who was a total grump, who just was impolite to everyone that they went around. They're always going to get their own way. And then they would come to me and they would say, John, you need to be more polite. And it's like, maybe they were right, but I just didn't care. And sometimes the lifestyle that surrounds the words that are delivered actually invalidates those words. And so the question that we need to ask as Christians is, has that ever been us? Because I was teaching through a series a while back from 1 Peter where we were talking about sharing the gospel with your life. And the culmination of that was in 1 Peter 3.15 where it says, But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. And in 1 Peter, Peter is talking about all of these portions of the Christian life, the way that you submit to authority, the way that you exist in marriage, the way that you suffer, and that when you live the way you're supposed to live, people see that and they ask questions. And when you're in the world functioning, what you say is not separated from what you do where you're going to go to someone and you're going to say, yes, my life is different. The reason that I'm so unique is because I know that Jesus came and he lived the life I couldn't live and he died my death for me and I believed that and I'm a changed man. And then they're going to look at you and they're going to say, uh, you act the same way I do, buddy. What was that again? What's this gospel that can change me? And the issue is that for every single Christian and for the church at large, we are supposed to be functioning as we ought to function in our behavior and then bringing our words behind that. For every Christian, those are not separate issues. Additionally, you know, this is written to Timothy, who is a young guy, and so he's saying, let no one despise you for your youth. And sometimes we have this idea that for one reason or another, demographic A is just not able to function or serve, or demographic B is not able to function or serve. You know, you're too young to have anything meaningful to contribute, and you're so old that I don't even know if you're here right now. Like... We can have those ideas where we draw lines around what is and is not someone who's actually able to contribute to the kingdom. And so Paul writes to Timothy and he says, Timothy, in your specific demographic, this might be the temptation that gets you lax. Don't fall for that. And so I want to take a look at some of the other demographics that exist in the church and give you some stuff that the Bible says about those as well. Because it's not just about young people. Maybe you get a bit older. Maybe you stop being single. Maybe you have kids. And so what does the Bible say about parents who exist in the church? And I know that everyone's like preparing themselves for some young 20-nothing to give them parenting advice. Um, sorry, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to try to steer clear of my opinions here. But in Deuteronomy chapter 6, it says, You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul and with all of your might. And these words that I command you today shall be on your heart, and you shall teach them diligently to your children, and you shall talk of them when you sit in your house, and when you walk by the way, and when you lie down, and when you rise. You want to talk about the biblical model of education? There it is. The people who have the responsibility to train their kids are parents. And one of the things that's valuable to consider is that that is an extraordinary opportunity. 
That is an extraordinary opportunity and an extraordinary responsibility. In Ephesians chapter 6, the New Testament reiterates this, and it says, Fathers, do not provoke your children to anger, but bring them up in the discipline and instruction of the Lord. In 1 Timothy 3, as well as Titus 1, the character of a man is judged by how he raises his kids. And in 1 Timothy 5 and Proverbs 31, the character of a woman is judged based on how she raises her kids. God has given this extraordinary opportunity, and if you get older, and this is the stage of life that you're in, your responsibility is to teach your kids the things that God wants them to know. And, I mean... This is another one of those things, kind of a lie that Satan wants to get into the church, is the idea that parents have no influence in their kids' lives. I want to talk to you about a friend of mine, a friend of mine who does youth ministry a bit further north in California, and he and I were having a conversation. This guy worked as an English teacher for several years. He was sharing the gospel there. He was trying to have a gospel witness, and he was investing in the lives of his students. And then he thought to himself, man, I want to have more of an impact. I want to have more of a spiritual impact on these students' lives that I just feel like I can't have as a teacher. I'm going to go become a youth pastor. So he went to seminary, and as he's functioning in youth ministry, about a year down the line, he and I are having a conversation. And he says, you know, John, I just, I just don't have as much time as I'd like to have with them. I only see these students for an hour a week, maybe for, you know, three hours a week, maybe for youth events. But I just don't have the time to be able to invest in them and have the impact that I thought I was going to be able to have. And he was talking to me and he said, you know what I'm realizing? I'm realizing that all of the impact that I wanted to have and felt like I wasn't having as a teacher, all of the impact that I wanted to have and felt like I'm not having as a youth pastor, you know who has that opportunity? Their parents their parents who see them every day when they come home, their parents who are able to advise them and talk to them about their friends, to talk to them about school. As they go to schools that are going to teach them all kinds of things, it's their parents who they come home to and are able to talk to them about it and bring God's word to it. And he was talking to me and he was saying, no one has the impact in a student's life that their parents have. And the idea that you are powerless and your ability to effectively raise and empower your children is a lie. And it is something that Satan wants you to believe so that you can have your own potential benefit to your kids be invalidated. No one has the opportunity that you have. And maybe you're looking at this opportunity and you're thinking to, me, to yourself, man, John, I'm just not up to the task. I mean, I was talking to Justin Worth a while back and he was talking to me about when his daughter Adelaide was born. And now he's driving home away from the hospital with this little baby in the back seat. And he's looking at her in the rear view mirror and he's thinking, man, who let me drive away with a kid? <laughs> I'm just a kid myself. I don't know what I'm doing. And I was telling my dad about that. And my dad said, man, I felt that way with Jessica and Julianne. <laughs> Where I was looking at Julianne and I'm thinking, I've done this before, but man, who let me leave with her? And the thing is, this is a major responsibility. This is a scary thing uh, that I don't have the experience to speak from, but I mean, uh, but I have other people's experience. But this is a major thing. This is a major responsibility that we've been given. And the thing is, if it feels daunting, good, it is. And the thing is, God has given you the Holy Spirit to empower your ability to function in your family, to function as a parent, and... He's given you a book that you can read with everything you need to know. 
And the question is, are we as Christians accessing this resource? Are we accessing the resource of the Holy Spirit? Are we accessing the resource of the Bible as we train our kids? Because the primary spiritual authority in your kid's life is the parent. And if you're thinking to yourself, man, I don't know the Bible. I I haven't been trained to know this stuff. How am I supposed to teach them? Well, as a parent, you have an extraordinary opportunity to learn the things that your parents or your church or anyone else failed to teach you and then to teach that to your kids. If you feel like you're not prepared to teach your kids the book of Genesis, read the book of Genesis. Study the book of Genesis. And right after you're done, call your kid in the room and teach them. And then while you're teaching them Genesis, go on to Exodus. Read, read Exodus. Learn Exodus. And then once you're done with Genesis, teach them Exodus. And as you are parenting your kid, learn the things that you were supposed to have learned earlier and didn't. And then teach them to your kids. Give your kids the benefit that you didn't have. And so, if you're a parent, that's an extraordinary opportunity. But now I want to address one more demographic. You know, let's talk about older Christians. You know, the people that... I swear, man, I haven't been out of high school for more than five years, and I still have to convince the youth groupers that I'm not out of touch. <laughs> like, I, I can't imagine what it's going to be like, what it's got to be like for people who have uh, been out of high school longer than I've been alive, man. My heart goes out for you, man. But if you are an older Christian in the church, if you guys want to turn to Titus chapter 2, let's talk about the unique opportunity and role that God has given you. In verse 3, it says, Older women, likewise, are to be reverent in behavior, not slanderers or slaves to much wine. They are to teach what is good, and so train the young women to love their husbands and children, to be self-controlled, pure, working at home, kind, and submissive to their own husbands, that the word of God may not be reviled. So that's the older women. Let's talk about older men. It says, likewise, urge the younger men to be self-controlled. Show yourself in all respects to be a model of good works. And in your teaching, show integrity and dignity and sound speech that cannot be condemned so that an opponent may be put to shame, having nothing evil to say about us. And the thing that we look at is that if you're an older person, you have an extraordinary opportunity to invest in the Christians that are younger than you. And I just want to tell you in my own life some examples of that. I told you earlier that a while back I was teaching through First Peter, where we were talking about sharing the gospel with your life. And as I was going through that series, there were two men that really encouraged me. One of them was Mike Gassaway, where we would talk after youth group on Wednesday nights, and Mike would give me his testimony. He talked about how he was in Seattle before he was a Christian. And in Seattle, he was there with his buddies, and he, he goes up to a lady on a bench, and he says, hey— you know a bar that me and my buddies could go to. And then the lady looks up at him and she says, I used to know them all, but now I'm a Christian. And Mike didn't continue that conversation with her. And the thing that always struck me is that this lady at that bench probably had no idea the impact that that comment made. She probably watched Mike walk away thinking, who knows what's going to happen with that. And yet decades later, every time Mike has shared his testimony with me, that lady is the first person he mentions. And I was thinking about the fact that I wanted to show my students that everything they do has genuine value, that they might not see what God does with their faithfulness, but it matters. I was thinking about Tom Canavino. I'm in a discipleship group with him on a Thursday nights here at the church at 6.30 to 7.30 p.m. 
where we're going over transferable concepts by Bill Bright. And there was one particular week where he talked about the fact that God does not need to specifically call you to share the gospel with someone because he has already given you the command to share the gospel with everyone who will listen. And I was thinking about 1 Peter where it talks about living differently and answering questions. And I was thinking, I don't want my students to have the impression that they can be lax about this and wait for other people to come to them. I want to show them that they need to go out there and get it. And I added a whole extra night to my youth group so that we could go over that. And the thing that I think about is that Mike and Tom are not pastors. They are not elders. They are older people in the church functioning faithfully. And my students benefited from their faithfulness and their willingness to invest in me. And the thing is, as older Christians, you have the advantage of having looked at your life previously. And maybe you were faithful. Maybe you weren't. But either way, what you can do now is look at the Bible, look at your history, and then speak to younger Christians and say, hey, these are the things that I made mistakes in. These are the ways that God was merciful to me anyway, or these were the ways that God judged me for that. And then also, here's the things I did well, and here's the way that God was faithful to me as a result of that. Follow those examples. And older Christians have the opportunity and the responsibility to be investing in the younger Christians in the church. This is a community where we are supposed to be strengthening each other for our mission. And that's how the church functions. And I mean, I was asked to give more direct application. So here's, um, here's a piece of application that you can kind of draw from that. Think about your own life. Do you have people in your life who know what you're doing, who know where you're struggling, who are encouraging you to grow, that you actually have genuinely close relationships with, and are they Christians? Can you think of two older Christians in your life that are currently investing in you, who can call out the sin in your life, who are close enough to you to see the sin in your life, and who are able to encourage you and grow you to make you stronger? Can you think of two Christians in your life that are about your same age, that are about the same demographic as you, that you're growing alongside, that you're being accountable with, that you are going to be able to rely on as you go through the Christian walk? And can you think of two people in the church younger than you, that you are investing in, that you are helping grow, that you are giving the benefit of an older Christian to? And I mean, I'll tell you what that looks like in my own life. Right now, I do have older men that are investing in me. I do have younger Christians that I'm investing in, but in my case, that's kind of a gimme. (laughs) And the thing that I'm working on right now is that I do not have Christians my own age that I'm growing and functioning alongside. So I'm not trying to hand this to you as a, you know, get on it. I'm instead trying to say, let's be a church that does that better. Let's be a church that is engaging in community, that is investing in one another, that is not looking at the different demographics in the church and saying, well, you can't help me because of this, you can't help me because of that, and I'm not actually that into you. Um, Like, let's not be that kind of church. (laughs) Let's instead be a church that sees the unique opportunities and value in every demographic, in every stage of life, in every circumstance that God's given us, and let's be a church that is committed to growing each other in loving community and to putting the Bible at the center of that to make sure that as we are engaging in that community, that as we are investing in those younger than us, as we are listening to those older than us, that we are making sure that we can tell the difference between the truth of God and the doctrines of demons and to make sure that we tell that difference by what the Bible says. So with that, 
Let's bow our heads, pray it out, we'll move on to the remainder of the service. Lord, thank you for the opportunity that you have given us to function as your agents and your army in a hostile world. I pray that you would help us to see the specific circumstances that you've given us as young Christians, as old Christians, and everything in between, that we would see the value of the gift and the responsibility to invest in one another and to reach this lost world. I pray that we would know your word, that we would rely on your word, and that we would be able to live by it. And Lord, I pray these things in the name of our King, Jesus Christ. Amen.